Good morning. It is a great privilege and a pleasure for Dr. Van Nest and I to be here today. Union University uh, is actually the oldest institution related to Baptist life in the South. It traces back its origins to 1823. And uh, uh, we are one of a handful of institutions in this country that uh, in, in the next uh, couple of decades will be uh, celebrating three centuries, a third millennium of, of uh, service in 2023. That's where Union University will be. And from the very founding of... Uh, Union University with its origins uh, at West Tennessee College and Jackson Male Academy uh, back in 1823 and Jackson 23 and uh, 1823 and then through uh, the path that the university has taken since then. One, one of the bedrock convictions has always been the close relationship of the university with the local churches. Because quite honestly, we know that we would not be there if it weren't for uh, the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ and for the goodwill and support of Tennessee Baptists. Certainly we have never felt that more keenly than we have in this uh, last year as we've come in the aftermath of, uh, uh, of the tornado of February 5. And uh, we, are, we are so grateful. Uh, in a time in which we find many Christian institutions, whether they be Baptist or otherwise, moving away from uh, their connections with the, uh, the churches that support them. Union University is partnering uh, with churches. And um, we believe that the church is the change agent of culture. Now, we're on a national day of prayer, and, um, uh, and certainly we have unprecedented challenges facing us in our culture at this time. We have, um, we have things on the horizon, the likes of which the American church has not seen. And uh, we need to be reminded that it has been at those key crisis points and turning points of history that it has been the church that has been the prophetic voice and the witness to a moral conscience for the culture. And... Um, we are very, very privileged and pleased to be here and to partner with churches here in Middle Tennessee. And I want to thank you on behalf of Ray Van Nest and myself for coming out for, uh, for this uh, conference. It used to be, I think, that December was the busiest month uh, for families and pastors. But I'm not sure that maybe May is now not the busiest month for, uh, for pastors and churches with graduations and with uh, school ending and all kind of gearing up for summer programming and vacation Bible school and the like. So we're, we're very thankful that you're, that you're here. Now, our topic today is the, you know, um, you know very bland, vanilla topic of uh, the book of Revelation. Um, and, um, and, and really, I should sh- just say right now, there's no way we're going to dispatch these issues in a one-day Bible conference. We're not going to even, we're just going to get started. So we're going to have to have part two. I'm just saying right now, I know what I'm going to talk about. And I'm, I, I, let me just say, we will have to have uh, part two because we we, we're not going to even be able to get into all of uh, some of the juicy things that we, we sometimes like to talk about, millennial views and all these uh, uh, other things. Um, I, I heard a... I heard a saintly pastor say recently, I asked him what his millennial position was, and he said, I'm pro-millennial. I'm for a thousand years of peace anytime. Um, so we'll, we'll need to come back to probably get into all of that. But today, what I, would like to, what I would like to do with you is explore the ancient world of the Bible and the biblical backgrounds behind the book of Revelation, and maybe, Lord willing, uh, tease out... Uh, some of the issues um, uh, that are sometimes neglected as we race forward and try to look toward uh, the future. I'm just going to readjust this. So before we do this, let, let's bow our heads one more time and ask for God's blessing uh, upon His holy and inspired Word. Our Father and our God, 
we are privileged to be counted among the people of God. In Christ, you have set your love upon us and have granted us grace upon grace. And as our minds and our hearts think about uh, the situation of our nation and the church's role in bearing witness to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, we pray that you would find us faithful, that we would preach the word of God without fear, and that we would boldly proclaim the truths that have formed a culture that has protected the innocent, has upheld the sanctity of human life, and has caused freedom to flourish in so many places. Father, as we think about the past, we, our minds turn to examples like 150 years ago when a great crisis on Wall Street caused a mob of angry protesters to charge the central bank. And it was the preaching of a faithful pastor in lower Manhattan that sparked revival to break out in that place. And thousands of people came to faith in Jesus. Father, we pray as we look at the Apostle John this morning and his witness in a time of unprecedented persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire. Father, we pray that we would have that kind of testimony for Jesus. And now, Lord, in these next few moments, I pray that you would grant me the gift of teaching and preaching, that the words that I say might be in conformity with your word, the Bible. If I say anything that is in uh, agreement with the truth, I pray that it would sink down into our hearts and that we would live in accordance with it. And if I say anything that is an error, Father, Lord, I pray that you would uh, forgive me and uh, that you would uh, cause us to forget it forever. Thank you for these pastors, for these lay leaders, for these faithful people. Thank you for the mission and work of Union University. Grant us grace, we pray even as we pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. Amen. The title for my talk today uh, is um, something that you might have heard about before. 666. The Apostle John, Emperor Domitian, and what Left Behind didn't teach you about Revelation in Sunday school. Now, uh, I would like to begin with, uh, with a, a little background on a very influential figure uh, in, the, uh, in the ancient world of the Bible, particularly as it relates to the end of the first century. This is a picture of Caesar Domitian, who ruled from 81 to 96 A.D. And Caesar Domitian was a, a bit of a bird of a different feather, uh, compared to previous emperors that had gone before him. You see, previous emperors had aggrandized titles to themselves, lofty titles, uh, partly beginning with uh, Caesar, uh, Julius Caesar, uh, picking up steam with uh, Augustus Caesar. Mostly the titles that were given to him were titles that were given to him by the Roman Senate or by others. And you had a number, of the, uh, a number of the emperors that had called themselves even things like the Son of God and took on this, uh, all of this um, accoutrements of, of power to themselves. But it was Caesar Domitian who really upped the ante. He declared himself imperator, the supreme ruler of the world, on 23 different occasions. And he was the first emperor to call himself God the Lord. And he put it on the money. And God we trust <laughs> meant a different thing during the reign of Caesar Domitian. So he called himself God the Lord and the Savior of all eternity. Now, previous emperors had... Uh, persecuted Christians. You'll know about the persecution of Nero, uh, under which the martyrdom of St. Paul and St. Peter occurred. 
But that was mostly localized to Rome. It was Caesar Domitian who was the first emperor to conduct a worldwide or an empire-wide persecution of the Christian church with the explicit purpose of trying to wipe out the Christians altogether. Now, why would he want to do that? Well, I mean, the easy answer was is that he was crazy. And that's true. Uh, He was a certified lunatic. He was a brutal man. He killed anybody who got uh, in his way. He was not beloved by his colleagues in the Roman Senate. And uh, it's, it's kind of funny when you, when you study some of these things and you look at depictions of Domitian, uh, as he got older and fatter and uh, more grotesque looking, the depictions of him on the coinage and in, in busts like this become more chiseled and, uh, and uh, glorious. And, um, you know, sometimes rulers have, uh, have difficulty handling power. Right. Uh, we, we know this. But um, but if uh, if you if you drill down a little further. Next slide. Domitian uh, was a paranoid individual. He was also a reader. And there were passages in ancient writers like Tacitus and Suetonius that spoke of this prophecy of a great ruler arising in the east. Uh, that would come from the province of of Judea and gain glory and power. And this really unnerved Domitian. This spooked him. And he got to be paranoid about it. Now, uh, it's interesting to look at some of what's going on behind the scenes because in Caesar Domitian's household... He, uh, he had two surrogate parents. He and his wife were not able to have children. So they had a surrogate couple by the names of Clemens and Domitilla who had their children for them. Their names were Vespasian and the other one was named Domitian. And it's a little difficult for somebody who claims to be God the Lord to admit that he can't have children, but at any rate... He, uh, he, he contracted with this couple, and it just so happens that this couple, Clemens and Domitilla, became Christians. And uh, church history tells us that probably the Clemens that was living in this household of, of Domitian became Clement of Rome, who wrote uh, uh, the, some of the earliest letters or the he's the earliest of the early church fathers so you have this sort of underground christian movement developing in domitian's backyard and because members of the roman senate hated him so much because many of them still had romantic feelings about uh, the old republic even some of the Roman senators began exploring this message about this one Jesus of Nazareth who claimed to be the true king of the world. There started to be these Christians that started to pop up in Domitian's context, and he was paranoid about it. Now, the plot thickens because uh, there was... Um, an imperial city in Asia Minor, uh, the, the, the key city, the imperial city of Asia Minor, was Ephesus. Next slide, please. Here's some pictures of it. Ephesus was chosen by Caesar Domitian as the imperial center of his worship as being God. And um, I, I had the good fortune to visit uh, Ephesus recently my first time. It's in modern day Turkey. I would encourage you, if you can ever go, you need to go. I call it Biblical Disneyland. It is the closest thing to a, a, a actual um, close to scale reproduction archaeological investigation recovery of, of a city that we have. The most complete. 
It is gorgeous. What, the reason for that is that there was, um, there was a great plague of, of mosquitoes that uh, had broken out. And uh, there were earthquakes. And basically, the city was, uh, was abandoned very quickly. And, um, and so much of what remained of the city was untouched because people didn't want to get the plague or the disease that had, uh, that had characterized it. So Ephesus was the, was the center of uh, Caesar's uh, worship. And uh, if you will notice, uh, in the upper left-hand corner, that is a picture of what is left of, there's not much left of it, for reasons we'll explain later. Uh, there is the remains of what's left of the high temple, on the, on the um, high point of the city, the temple to Emperor Domitian. And inside that temple, there were ceremonies dedicated to the worship of the emperor. There was a 16 to 20 foot high image of Domitian in the, you know, at the altar. And they had... Uh, they had various different ceremonies. Uh, there was also the uh, same replica of the same image, of the same statue that was in the city center. But when you came to worship at the temple of Domitian, you would, uh, you would come in and the, the statue, people didn't know this, but the statue was hollowed out. And there was a high priest of the temple of Domitian who presided over the worship there. And he would have his little minions get inside this statue. It was hollowed out. And the statue would perform wonders. And uh, we'll, we'll say more about that in a little bit. But kind of a fog and light show would take place and do amazing things. And this all further confirmed that the emperor was, in fact, God. Or at least that's what was happening in the high priest presided over that. And all was, everything was going very swimmingly for emperor worship right there in, in Ephesus until there was a little bump in the road. There was a little problem. John, next slide, John the Apostle in the tradition, he's often referred to as John the Theologian. The Apostle John, the beloved one of Jesus, we know that uh, he lived outlived uh, the other apostles, and he was the presiding bishop or pastor that oversaw the work of the churches there in Asia Minor. And here's what he was preaching to his people. You shall not and you should not bow down to this idol. You will not worship Domitian. You will not say that he is God. And let's just talk about what the stakes were here. This wasn't just, you know, a a choice. Well, I just won't go to church to worship there. You didn't do business in the Agora if you did not sign off on saying that Caesar was God. And so John said, you are not to bow down. You are not to worship. Well, Domitian finds out about this pastor uh, in, of these churches in Ephesus that it, uh, is rabble-rousing and creating all kinds of trouble. And he's connected to this Jesus of Nazareth from Judea that has odd connections to this prophecy, these prophecies that he's been hearing, and for a paranoid guy, he wants to find John. So he arrests John. Domitian arrests John. Now, what do you do if you are a megalomaniac emperor and you find the guy who's been uh, creating trouble in your uh, temple cult of imperial worship? What do you do with that guy? What do you do with him? Now, I heard somebody say, you, you, uh, you arrest him, yeah? I heard somebody say, exile. Unfortunately, yeah, that, 
We, we know a little bit too much of the story right now. You kill him. That's what you do with somebody that's creating that much trouble. You get rid of him. Now, so what happened here? Because we all know that John winds up exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Well, Jerome tells us that, that Domitian arrests John and brings him to Rome. And Tertullian reports that, uh, that John stood trial before Domitian, and Domitian sentenced him to die in a bat of uh, boiling oil. And Tertullian says that they threw John in this vat of, of boiling oil, and Tertullian says that it happened at the Colosseum in Rome. And John went into the um, vat of boiling oil, swam around down there for a little bit, and popped right back up and said, I'm good. He was invincible, he was unbreakable. There's nothing Domitian could do to this guy. He couldn't kill him. Especially before, if it happened at the Colosseum of Rome, can you imagine the embarrassment of trying to do away with this Christian pastor and failing? And, um, by the way, I'll go ahead and, and, and uh, mention this right now. Why do you think that's the case, that he couldn't kill John? I mean, Paul lost his head <laughs> to Nero. Peter was crucified upside down. Any ideas about that? What's it? God wasn't through with him. Amen? Amen? There may be actually a biblical reason in the, in the text of Scripture itself. Do you remember there at the end of the Gospel of John where Jesus tells Peter how much he's going to have to suffer and basically tells him he's going to die for the Gospel? Remember Peter says to, then Jesus goes and starts talking to John and they're walking on the beach together. And Peter's kind of, you can kind of tell Peter's kind of like walking along behind trying to listen in on what's going to happen to John. And uh, Peter says, what about him? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus says to John, what's it to you? He's going to be fine. He's going to be good. I think Jesus promised John that he would live out his days, and so John was just completely fearless. So, what does Domitian do with the guy he can't kill? Next slide. He sends him to a spa facility in the Aegean Sea. No, I'm just kidding. I, my, when we go into the Isle of Patmos last summer, my, my wife said, this is lovely. Um, and uh, you see a cruise ship out there in the harbor, and the Beautiful blue Aegean Sea there. Um, it's irrigated now, and it's actually quite nice now. But at the time, the Isle of Patmos was a mining community with, with nothing but a barren rock. Rock mines. No vegetation whatsoever. There was no water. They have water, water on there now, and it's irrigated. But he, he banishes John to this Isle of Patmos... And while on the Isle of Patmos, John receives this glorious vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus reveals to John, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. And the kingdom of my reign shall never end. And John falls down on his face and receives this revelation from Jesus. And, and I just, I love the Lord. I love the Bible. Because the Bible is so filled with all these things that should inspire us with prophetic courage. Because what happens is John receives this revelation. And essentially, the revelation, whatever else it might Mean. And we'll get to that. We'll, we'll talk about... We'll, we'll get, that's why we're going to have to have part two of this conference. But let me just say right now, the book of Revelation meant something to the church in the first century. It wasn't just written for Christians living in the 21st century or at the end of time. It meant something to them. And Jesus essentially says, let's take Emperor Domitian and have a little fun with 
Let's take him up by his sandals or his toga or whatever he wore and shake him upside down. And Jesus is about ready to make a fool out of Domitian. Next slide, Lyle. Now, let's go back to Ephesus. What I want you to see is that so much of the book of Revelation can be understood A great amount of the imagery can be understood if you understand what was going on in this ancient city of Ephesus where John pastored. Now, in this temple of Domitian back in Ephesus, there were these festal ceremonies that I was talking to you about in which the high priest came in and prostrated himself before this giant statue of Emperor Domitian. And what did the statue of Emperor Domitian do? I told you there was a fog and light show. Its eyes blazed with burning fire. And it had hair white like Zeus. And its feet were like burnished bronze. And the statue had a sash around it, denoting the fact that Domitian was in the process of conquering the Germanic tribes at that time. So a great warrior. And when a warrior wore the sash around his waist, that connoted that he was in the process of conquering, that he was gaining territory. Does any of this sound familiar to anybody? Does that sound like anything you might have heard before? And I fell... On my face, as though I were dead. And I saw one like the Son of Man, whose eyes were blazing like fire, with a sword coming out of his mouth, whose hair was as white as the snow. But there's a difference between John's image of the one whom he worships The sash is worn on the chest in Revelation chapter 1. And that was a sign that the victory has already been won. The battle is over. Jesus is Lord, not Domitian. So don't be afraid. Don't bow down to an idol. Don't give in because Jesus is the king and the kingdom of his reign shall never end. So you can stand up to this guy, Domitian. Now in this temple of Domitian also, they would have sacrifices to the emperor at which point they would go out from the temple and process through the streets of Ephesus toward a giant stadium that uh, Domitian had built. He loved, he loved the Roman games, and they were called the Capitoline Games, these imperial games. And they would all gather in this, uh, this uh, great, vast stadium, and they would have these, these games. And Domitian would often come to these things. He would show up, and he would sail. Now, Ephesus is a harbor city. Keep this in mind for later on in the talk. Ephesus is a harbor city, and Domitian would sail up in his boat and come up out of the sea. Now, back then, uh, the city of Ephesus was right up, the ancient city that you saw was right up against the harbor. Now it's about a mile or two out because of this uh, plague of mosquitoes and some topographical changes, but used to come right up out of the sea, right into the city. And so Domitian would come, and he would sit in his imperial chair in the stadium, and they would break seals and scrolls filled with all kinds of messages for Domitian's flunkies, for his provincial rulers and governors in the area, to the cities. And um, he liked to think of himself as this, you know, uh, this, this God. And so you see, these, you see coins with, depicting him with this, holding the seven stars in his hand. Does that sound familiar to anybody? And he would break these seals and he would read them out. 
and he would write things like this to the Roman uh, official at the city of uh, Smyrna, right? These things you are doing well and you're doing good in your job. You've pleased Domitian, but these things I have against you. And if you do not do as I tell you, I will come and I will sniff out your candle on your lampstand, which was another image that was on the Roman coins of Domitian. Next slide. Then they would sing hymns to Zeus or to Domitian. Hail, victory, Lord of the earth. This was their hymn. Invincible power, glory, honor, peace, security, holy, blessed, and great art thou. Thou alone art worthy to receive the kingdom. Even so, Maranatha, do not delay. Come, Lord Domitian. And he just exulted in this and loved all of this. So they had praise and worship time there in the stadium. And after they got done with praise and worship time, boom, the doors of the stadium would open and out would rush teams of horses that would have these great horse races. One ancient writer describes the sound of these horses as, quote, the sound of many horses rushing into battle. Does that sound familiar to anyone? It's kind of like what they do at the Dixie there in Gatlinburg. You know, I don't know if you've ever gone to that. Uh, I went there with my family. You know, they, they have these different teams, you know, that go out on these horses and they race with each other. And uh, they, they have the north side and the south side. I got stuck on the north side the last time I was there. They booed us. Um, so these teams were divvied up into four different colored horsemen that uh, unleash cries of joy and woe among the great throng of people. Now, next slide. After a lot of these games and fanfare, Domitian, because he was a bloodthirsty guy, would unleash these exotic beasts out into the arena. Great lions and beasts of prey. And they would put out these smaller animals and and then these lions would devour them. And this was to be a picture of this is what Domitian will do to anyone who crosses him. Now, I want you to take your Bibles out to Revelation chapter 5. And with that backdrop in mind, this idea of being in this great stadium... This idea of there being these games with these horsemen who come out. With the, with the great ruler sitting on the throne. Look at the, your chapter headings for chapter 4 and then begin reading with me at verse 5. Or at chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back. Sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look in it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to look in it. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. Now, let's just pause there for a second. Here's that lion ready to come out and devour all of his enemies. But here is where the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ takes that that idea of Domitian, this idea that earthly power is the only thing that it's about. It's only about victory. It's only about military battle. So the Lion of Judah is about ready to pounce out onto the stage. But let's read on. Here's the gospel, people. 
And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, not a lion came out. But I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. This is a different song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seals because you were slain and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign upon the earth. Do we serve the lion of the tribe of Judah? You bet we do. But it is only the Christian gospel. It is only the Bible that says it's not just about a king, but it's a king who comes to die. It is a king who comes to shed his blood, to suffer for his people. That lion doesn't go out into the arena of theater just to do damage and create more brutality. He comes out to redeem people from their sins and to create an entirely different kind of kingdom and rule than any earthly monarch had ever imagined on the face of the earth. So you see, Domitian's getting a little taste of his own medicine here. Next, next slide. I'm hoping what... One of the things that we could see here is that with some of these things in, in, uh, in mind, next slide, what we see is that there is this context behind what the Apostle John is doing in the book of Revelation. He is training Christians how to fight the power of of giving in to the gods of this world and telling them how to stand for Jesus in their time. Next slide. Now, you said the title of this talk was going to be 666. What, what are we talking about here? Why haven't you talked about that? Well, okay, just hold on a second. I'm getting to that right now. Domitian, every emperor, had coins. And they had messages about what the emperor thought about himself on the coins. And if you go back and look at the Roman coins of this time, one of the most popular ones had in Rome, they had Latin inscriptions. In the rest of the empire, they had Greek inscriptions. Okay? So the Latin inscription on one of Domitian's coins, one of the most popular ones, was the following. Imperator... Caesar Domitianus Augustus Germanicus. Caesar, Imperator, ruler of the world, Augustus Domitian, ruler of the Germanic tribes, which he was conquering at that point. In Greek, it was Autocrator Kaiser Domitianus Sebastius Germanicus. And if you look at the coins, they couldn't obviously get all that on a coin, all that verbiage, so they would they would uh, abbreviate it. And there's the abbreviation there down at the bottom of the screen in the picture of the coin itself. Now, at the very beginning of this talk, I had referenced a, uh, a, a scholar from the previous generation who was a genius. His name was Ethelbert Stauffer. Now, um, Ethelbert, there's a name for any of you searching for baby names. Um, quite a name, geeky name. But Ethelbert Stauffer was, uh, was a scholar of these Roman coins. And uh, what he realized is that the ancient Christians uh, took up the practice of something that the Jews had done themselves while they were in exile in Babylon, which was develop their own code 
for talking to each other so that nobody that read the message would be clued in on what they were actually talking about. Now, next slide. The Hebrew alphabet was developed by the Jews in exile, and you find it in the book of Ezekiel and Daniel and other places, with these kind of coded messages. Well, the Apostle John did the same thing with the Greek alphabet, according to Ethelbert Stauffer, and assigned each of the letters of the Greek alphabet with a, an alphanumeric value. So you see alpha is uh, the number one, and then you get down to iota, and it counts by tens, uh, so that there's a different pattern going on. And then when you get to rho, it starts counting by hundreds on down to omega. Next slide, please. So, let's do some math fun with the Apostle John, based upon these Roman coins. Here's the abbreviation on the coin. Alpha, Kappa, Alpha, Iota, and so on. And you assign those alphanumeric values to each one of those things, based upon the Greek gematria, which was not unique to the Apostle John. You can go on. Google this on the internet. You can find all these references to this Greek gematria. And you, tie, you, you do a sum of all of those values of that abbreviation on that coin. And what do you get? Next slide, please. Six, six, six. Who is the beast of the book of Revelation, at least for the Apostle John? It is Caesar Domitian. He is saying, Satan, your kingdom is about to come down. Now, I want you to look at Revelation chapter 13 with me. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled who followed the beast. By the way, Domitian was injured in in a battle. It was called the mortal wound by historians of the time. And they worshipped the dragon. For he had given them authority to worship uh, the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear... Let him hear. Now, these coins are being carried around, saying that Caesar is God the Lord. And if you refuse to use these coins and trade with them, you didn't do business, and you probably starved to death. This was a very, very real problem for the Christians living in Asia Minor and in Ephesus as to what to do here. Next slide, please. Pliny the Younger, who was a historian at this time, referred to Caesar, uh, to Caesar Domitian with this word, he, words. He called him the beast from hell who sits in his den licking blood. Beast from hell. That's what Pliny called him. And that title stuck. And John returns to it here. How does he refer to Domitian? The beast coming up out of the sea covered in the blood of the saints. 
And I told you about this 16-foot-high hollow gold stature of, uh, of, of the emperor Domitian and how the, the priest would hide his priests in the statue at night and it would speak and it would amaze people with all kinds of wonders. There is a high priest who leads the worship of the great beast. Right? So you have the dragon. Who's the dragon? Satan himself. You have the beast who comes up out of the sea. Remember, Domitian's riding in his boat up to the port harbor of Ephesus and going to these games. And then you have a high priest who leads the world in this false and blasphemous worship of this beast. That's the high priest of Domitian. That's the second beast mentioned there in Revelation chapter 13. Now, next slide. I'm coming into the home stretch here. Now I'm going to start preaching a little bit. We need to talk about all of the prophecies that are in the book of Revelation. I have no problem saying that the book of Revelation is filled with information about the future. It definitely talks about a physical, literal second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to earth. And that is going to happen at which point Satan and his kingdom will come to an end once and for all. Amen? But we have debates about what all that future stuff means. But one thing I know for certain is that the book of Revelation was written in its original context to help Christians stand for Jesus when everybody else was falling away. And whatever else you want to say about the book of Revelation, it is the most potent and powerful political protest letter of all time, putting Caesar Domitian on notice that this is not going to last. That there's a greater king who by his blood has ransomed for himself a people and that there is a new kingdom about ready to take shape on planet Earth. Eventually, Domitian's brutality and his cruelty catch up with him. Next slide. On on September 18th, AD 96, there was this itinerant Pythagorean preacher named Apollyanus of Tiana that broke out in this ecstatic vision saying, Strike down the bloodhound. He's dead. He began telling people that the emperor in Rome had been killed. This is a guy that's in Asia Minor, in Ephesus, telling them that Caesar has died. Caesar Domitian has died. Well, of course, they didn't know that. I mean, there wasn't exactly, you know, instantaneous text messaging at that point. So weeks later, a herald with the news, arrives from Rome with the Evangel. It's called an Evangel. The Good News. Ding dong, Domitian is dead. And what happened when that news broke out? John had sent his letter encouraging them to stand and the Christians rose up And went to the temple of Domitian and started taking it all down. Broke down that statue and hurled the head of that great statue, that idol, off of the terrace of the temple. Do you remember the way that temple of Domitian looked earlier on? That was some Christians going to work. Standing for Jesus and not giving in despite persecution, despite the threat of starvation, despite the, their lives being at stake. Now, here's my, here's my take-home message here. And it is this. Sometimes when we get wrapped up in what the book of Revelation meets for the future, means for the future, we get so tied up in that that we miss what may be the primary point that John intended to give the church, which is you do not sit on your hands and wait for Jesus to come back. You stand now. You preach now. 
You contend for the faith now. We're not sitting around on our hands waiting for the rapture to happen. We are to be busy and at work testifying to the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ until he returns. Meanwhile, back on the Isle of Patmos, the news comes that Domitian is dead. And the aged Apostle John gets up out of his mind, goes and sees the light of day, gets on a boat, takes a little cruise back to Ephesus. And he comes up into the harbor into which the beast used to sail. And he puts his feet on the ground and he is, he is greeted by a throng of Christians who have stood upon the word of God. And John goes back to his abode, wherever that was, probably sits down and has a cup of tea, and eventually dies of old age. Will you pray with me? Oh God, would you find us faithful? like an Apostle John, like the martyrs of the early church, who stared in the face of persecution, the likes of which none of us have yet seen, but may see in our lifetimes, and say, we name only one God and one Lord, Jesus Christ. And we shall not serve another. Father, help us to treasure the gospel. To treasure your Bible, which is the word of God. And may we look forward to the day in which you will set all things right when your son returns to planet earth to set up a kingdom that shall not perish and will never fade away, in which there will be no sorrow, no tears, and in which there will be everlasting joy. Even so, we pray, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus.